0: Well, this morning our text is from the second chapter of James, James chapter 1, if you'd turned there in your Bibles, page 1208, if you're using our Pew Bible, James 2 and verse 1, verses 1 through 7 is what we'll be looking at this morning. In our text today, we're brought to a common and a, a difficult concept that is all too familiar to us. And that is the issue of prejudice. The idea of favoring one type of person over another. This concept is closely associated actually with the last verse... Of chapter one. And and we should expect that because we remember that as the biblical authors wrote, they didn't go, okay, this will be verse 26, and this will be verse 27, and the end of chapter one, and then we'll start chapter two. These were continuous writings, many cases even without punctuation. So as James wrote, he flowed directly from verse 27 of chapter one into chapter two as we see it, and these chapter and verse designations came much later than the writing of the original letters. So when we recognize that, then we understand why there is this close connectivity to the care of orphans and widows that we see in verse 27. Because that is the importance of caring for those without resources and that are unable to care for themselves when we recognize the reality of God's sovereignty, we understand that it pervades into every area of our lives, even into the provision which we each individually have. And therein also to the lack of provision that some such as these widows and deeds and orphans may be in. And so as we recognize those components, we, we see that it is God who is giving out, and we know this from our own lives. We know many who are hard-working men who work 40, 50, 60 hours a week and have done so their whole lives and have carved out an acceptable living for themselves. Others who work much less and who achieve much, much more. And we understand that it is not a function necessarily of how one works. It's been interesting. I've had the privilege of going through a a discipleship time with one of the men that's moving forward towards elder in our church and we've been going through a book on the Puritans and this was an understanding that they knew full well that wealth was not something that was directly tied with hard work hard work was something that was to be expected of the Christian man or woman but it was something for which God would reward according to his sovereignty Therein so also, when we think of the care of these that are without provision and opportunity, that it is the responsibility of those to whom God has blessed to have such resources. So, as we think of the last part of verse 27, where it says, "...pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world... This idea is flowing over into our text in chapter 2. And there's, there's this idea behind this that, that we have to have this pure and undefiled religion in all of our lives. That we are to be those who are unstained by the world. And that we're to reflect that in the way that we care for others. And as we'll see today, in the way that we treat others as well. So we come to our title for this morning's message, The Putridness of of prejudice, the putridness of prejudice. Let's take a look at our text together before we discuss it. Follow along, if you will, as I read James 2 and 1 through 7. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring... And dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, You sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, You stand over there, or Sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? The putridness of prejudice. Well, James is going to pick up many of the themes that we've seen already in chapter 1 and carry them forward just as we discussed with verse 27 and this idea of pure and undefiled religion and keeping ourselves unstained by the world. And that, of course, is an important idea for us as we understand James is written a little bit like First John. 1 John is an incredible book theologian saying that it is simple enough for the youngest believer, the newest believer, and yet deep enough to drown the most seasoned theologian. It's a circular letter and it moves back and forth through topics. And James has some of that same conception. He'll reach a topic and then he'll leave it and then he'll bring it back up later. So there's later. So there's somewhat of a a circular context to the way that he makes his argumentations. And we'll see that as we move along. Our first point in this text, in verse 1, is the distinction of conviction. The distinction of conviction. James begins by associating himself with the church in the first phrase, my brethren. We've seen him do this often because he wants the church to know that he is on the same plane with them. As he brings these difficult teachings, he's not standing up above them, casting dispersion and condemnation upon them. Rather, he is associating and understanding that these are difficult things and things which are difficult too for him. And so he connects himself by that wonderful phrase, which we've seen again twice before he tells the church by way of command, do not hold your faith with an attitude of personal favoritism. This is not a suggestion. This is not an optional way. This is not something that isn't good and we ought to think about. He says, do not do this. Do not hold your faith by way of personal favoritism. As he brings that point, he, he illuminates for us the title of our message and our first point. This idea of the, the putridness, the unacceptableness of prejudice. That we are not to have these personal favoritisms. And not only that, that is to be a function of the distinction of our conviction. Our conviction being our faith and the fact that our faith is such a glorious gift that we ought not ever Take that faith and then consider others as less superior as a group and consider ourselves or others more superior. For this type of personal favoritism is completely inappropriate. The prejudiced is considering one type of man above another. For any reason at all. It's interesting that in the original, this word personal favoritism is a plural. So it's actually personal favoritisms or other translations read prejudices. So he's not talking about any one type of condition that he is alluding to as prejudice. There is any number of ways by which we might have these prejudices. He's going to use social status. To illustrate his point. But it would also be applicable. To gender. It would also be applicable to. Ethnicity. Such an important word. Ethnicity. And not race. Because there are. No races. We are the human race. And everyone on this earth. Is a part of that. All coming. From one father. And mother. So as we all come from one, we understand that there is, although distinctions in the way in which God has brought forth and developed ethnicities, that we are all one race. And therein we must not have these personal favoritisms. And the concept behind this that becomes such an offense is that this denies the image of God. We are all made in the image of God. We all, believer or unbeliever, possess in a divine and unique way, which we share as human beings, everyone who has ever been born sharing this same blessing. In fact, beyond that, everyone who has ever been conceived sharing that blessing. This image of God that he has poured into mankind. And what we find is that when these personal favoritisms occur, that there is an issue of the glory of God that is being destroyed. Because as God put his image into man, he put his glory in some fashion into man. We are his highest creation. And creation is a wonderful understanding for us of God's elevating mankind above all of the created realm. And putting his glory into us. So when we would make personal favoritisms. When we would have prejudice towards another group. We are those who then would deny and demean the glory of God. And the glory of man. So vital for us to understand this. Because we are all created equal. So certainly not a civics letter, but the Founding Fathers, as they wrote the preamble to our Constitution, were correct. We are all created equal. And what a blessing it is to understand that we are endowed with certain inalienable rights. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. These are divine components. There is an equality that is to exist with all men and we must understand that and we must elevate that because as we elevate it, we are elevating creation. We are elevating what God has done. We are seeking to move back to the restoration prior to the fall and this is what all of redemptive history is about. God creating man and giving him his glory and creating him in perfection. Man falling in sin And the horror of that sin nature which all men, after our first father Adam and our first mother Eve, have inherited. But then redemption. The redemption brought by the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we come and as we realize this and as we Understand that there is to be no personal favoritism. We seek to bring about and to recognize that perfect, glorious creation. The fall and then the restoration, the redemption in Christ. And it is such an important message for us to hold on to. Such an important message that our world so desperately needs. So the one who is making a distinction is being prejudiced. He is showing his personal favoritism. And this is something that simply cannot be, for he commands us that it's not to be so. But notice that James just doesn't present this as a conviction of something which is wrong, which it is, or even something that is contrary to God, which it is. Rather, it is something that is contrary to faith. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. This is about faith. This is the function. This is the offense. This is what we must understand. That is, those who are given faith, that we must hold fast to the reality of what that faith is, which we've been given. It's interesting that he's going to use almost identical terms that he did back in chapter 1 and verses 9 and 10. Do you remember those verses? Back there, he talked about those who were the lowly. Those who needed to, as they understood their lowliness, were to exalt or to boast in their glory, in the glory that God had given them. Identical conceptions that we're talking about. And he also said the rich, and we understood that was the rich spiritually, were the ones who were to boast or to glory in their humiliation. We understand that that we have nothing that we can bring. Our faith is of no import from what we have contributed It's not social status. It's not being born right. It's not hard work. It's not anything that we do. Our faith is a gift from God. And so, as an understanding of that, when we show personal favoritism, when we show prejudice, what we are in fact doing is we are denying that element of our faith being given to us. And we're saying that somehow I have some right, I have some status. And therein, I can look at others and think that they are of less status. And that is absolutely contrary to what God's word tells us from beginning to end. The faith is in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Think about that phrase. Doesn't that seem kind of long? I mean, there's a lot of words there. Why did he do that? Well, he's identifying something very specific for us. As he talks about Jesus, he is identifying the man who was born of a virgin, who did the miracles and who lived in obedience and who fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament. When he reflects on him as Jesus Christ, that is not a surname as we know. That is his title It is the same word as the Old Testament Messiah. And it means anointed one. The one who has in the Old Testament had oil poured over their head. So as to affirm God's calling upon them. So Samuel did to David. In 1 Samuel chapter 7. And so also the Lord in his baptism. Evidencing the anointing from God. That being confirmed indeed by the Holy Spirit. So he is Jesus Christ, but he is the Lord. He is our master. To call someone Lord is to say that they are superior. To understand that this is the vital nature of our salvation. That we cannot simply pray a prayer and confess Christ and go on living the way that we want. Because to do so is to deny that he is Lord. It is saying, no, I am still Lord. So when he calls him the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a mountain behind this and we see this all over the scripture. But why the word glorious? You realize that there is nowhere else in the Bible that the word glorious is attached to this title, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's because this idea of glory is integral in this. All men have this glory and that glory comes from Christ. He is the glorious one. He is the most exalted one. He is the one who we're always to be looking towards. Colossians 3.1, keep your focus above where Christ is seated. What a beautiful conception for us to realize that it is all about Christ. The only place that we see this beautiful profession and the importance of emphasis is further confirmed As the original text says, and I'd ask you to look again at your Bibles in verse 1. If you're using the New American Standard, it says, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. The original text in the Greek is slightly different. The same nuance is there, but there's something he's telling us. In the original, it says, My brethren, do not hold the faith, not your faith, the faith, And not in our glorious Lord, but of our glorious Lord. He says to us there, my brethren, do not hold the faith of our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. This emphasis that he is making is focusing on the source of faith. To to affirm again that our faith is not at all of ourselves. That, that source is from Christ alone. It is, it has been given to us, it is ours to possess in full measure. But he is focusing on the source, and it's an important distinction. We recognize through this that faith is a grace gift from God. I've talked about Ephesians 2:8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. That it is a gift of God, not of yourselves, lest no one may boast. So many times, I'm concerned that somebody's going to come up and say, Pastor, you use that verse every message. And I hope that's not true, but it's kind of an important connotation for us. Kind of important to realize that our faith is truly and totally a gift of God by his grace. The scripture further says, you are not your own, but you were bought with a price. 1 Corinthians 6.20 makes that statement. So this faith that we have in this idea of personal favoritism, it is alien to any conception of our faith because we've had nothing to do with that faith. And the distinction of the faith of our glorious Lord Jesus Christ versus your faith is an indication of something that is yet coming. We'll see it at the end in verse 7. So you might make a note of that and just kind of keep track that there is that situation. So the first point of the putridness of prejudice is a distinction of conviction. That is, one cannot proclaim to have faith while being prejudicial. Our second point is a depiction of clothing in verses 2 and 3 a depiction of clothing. Look at those verses with me if you would. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Well, our contrast of clothing is revealed right there in verse 2. One man comes in in fine clothing. That word fine is very unique. There's a number of words that can be translated as fine from the Greek language. This one is the same word that means glittering or bright and shiny. In the book of Revelation, this same word is used two times to speak about the stars in the sky. So whatever this man has, it is, it is bright and dazzling. It is something that draws everyone attention, just as the stars do in the night sky. We got a, a video from uh, Camp Regen, which is on our church Facebook page, if you want to see some of those details and help remind you to be in prayer for our group as we go. And it begins with this beautiful picture in this high mountain night of the Milky Way and the stars rolling across it. And do the stars not captivate us and catch our attention? Well, this is the same glittering or brightness that is used of this man's clothes. And not only that, but he's also described as having on a gold ring. Now, before we all go, oh, wait a minute, I got a problem here. Recognize the time in which they were in. The idea of wealth in that day and time was completely different to where we are today. We ought not take some perspective as the previous Nazarene church did where they said that one must wear no jewelry because that is not what the scripture is speaking about. Of course, there are some limitations that must be realized as 1 Peter 3 tells us. But what we see as a contrast now is the second man. The poor man who is in dirty clothes. That word dirty is the same word used back in verse 21 of chapter 1 that is filthy. So these clothes are not just not looking good or old or holy, but they are filthy. So he's describing him not just as poor. Now understand that in this day and age, everyone had pretty much the same colored clothes on. You know, I look around, I see beautiful blues and pinks and salmons and yellows and greens. And that's how we dress today. In that day, it was not that way. Everyone wore essentially clothes that were similar in tone. Things were either, they were drab. They were gray or they were brown. I know drab's a color, but I'm not that, I'm a man. I can't get to that level of distinction. But they were browns or grays or tans and and just generally dingy clothing. And there were very few elements of clothing. In fact, we saw it in our scripture reading from Matthew 5. There was the cloak, which everyone had a cloak. It was necessary at night because it was like a blanket. And it may be the only thing that would keep you warm. And then there was a shirt. And these, of course, garments were long. They went down past the knees. They didn't wear pants. There was the, they wore long garments, and then they had the undergarments, which they would wear. But everybody kind of looked the same. But not this one. This one is filthy. He's evi- is evidence of his, how poor he is in this condition. And now we get an example of prejudice being set up for us. Verse 2 says that the, man, the men came into the assembly. That word assembly is the word synagogue in the, in the original Greek text. That helps us understand that this letter was written to the Jewish Christians of Northern Asia Minor. Now, many other indications in this in the Scripture tell us that. And we ought not wonder, well, what are Christians doing meeting in a synagogue? Because these were Jewish people who came to Saving Faith, who were not going to synagogue on the Sabbath, on Friday night, and on Saturday, but we're going on the Lord's Day. Whether the synagogue was still meeting in a Jewish context, we don't know. But they're still meeting in this house of worship. Now, of course, our church has met in a converted synagogue for a time, previous senior center. So there's obviously no issue with that, but it gives us an indication as to the background. The contrast is set up, but look at what James has done. The focus is not on the men, but it is on their clothing. It is on their apparel. It is on the type of people that their clothing represents. Now, I know I've shared this story with you before, but it bears repeating because it is so appropriate to our context. There is a pastor about uh, a year and a half ago, who was called to a fairly significant church. And after the elders had called him to the church, he made a plan with them. And in that plan, this man, for about three weeks prior to coming to his formal calling and beginning his ministry, let his beard grow, kind of went to goodwill and got some clothes that were a little shoddy looking, didn't bathe for a few days, and came into the church body. And the first week he came in and he went into the fellowship time and he walked around to see all the people and he sat in the front row and almost no one even acknowledged him, let alone spoke to him. The second week he did the same. And again, the same thing happened. And there was no recognition of this dirty poor man that came and sat right in the front row. And then, of course, he came the next week to begin his ministry in a coat and tie and shaved. And as he began, he put the picture up on the overhead of himself from the previous two weeks and called the people to recognize that there was something they needed to recognize and that it was not his clothing. The focus is not to be on the apparel, but that's exactly what's been pointed out to us here. And then in verse three comes the response to these two men. One is looked upon with favor and given the good seat. He is taken right down. He's obviously recognized in these bright clothes and these, this gold ring of a man of means, and that would be a blessing for the church. And so he's brought down, and he's looked through, and he's, as he brought down the aisle, he said, would you like to sit here or would you like to sit there? He says, well, I'd like to sit right here. We say, well, that's Bill's seat, but you're a man of, of means, so by all means, Bill won't mind. We'll scoot him over. And so they sit him there. The other is treated with disdain. He's told to stand over there. Now, in the synagogue, there were not a lot of seats. It was not uncommon for some people to stand. But he obviously was treated completely different than the other men. But he's not just perhaps told to stand over there, but he's also told something else, isn't he, in verse 3. Or sit down by my footstool. Sit down by my footstool. It shows that this was a leader. This was someone who had a very special place and seat in the church. He even had his own footstool so that he could get good and comfy while he was hanging out. Maybe his legs weren't too long and so it was easier for him to cross his legs on that little footstool. And this poor man with dirty, filthy clothes is told to sit by his footstool. Now we know from the Lord's teaching on the washing of the disciples' feet and the context of the ancient world that this was not a nice place to sit. In addition to one set of clothes, these people had one set of shoes and they were open-toed sandals. And they walked in the dirt. They didn't have nice sidewalks and asphalt. And so their feet were kind of disgusting. And so being sitting next to the man's footstool was a, a rather poor place to be seated. Certainly not a desirable position. And the idea was to demean and to keep this man where he could be kept an eye And We don't want you rubbing shoulders with anyone else. You just sit right down here. And at this point, the audience ought to be aghast. And say, really? I mean, okay, you give the wealthy guy a good seat, but you're going to tell him to sit by your footstool? This was indeed... A depiction of clothing and a reflection of the putridness of prejudice. This clothing is something we must never look at, beloved. I I know of a man who in the late 40s and early 50s used to wear a a monotoned one-piece suit. It was khaki. It was from J.C. Penney. Was J.C. JCPenney pants and J.C. JCPenney matching khaki shirt and a J.C. JCPenney matching khaki hat. And he wore around knee waders irrigating boots. And this was his dress wherever he went around Tacoma, Washington. This man owned one of the largest food chains in the Western United States. His name was Marco Nally and he owned Nally's Food Company. But to look at him... He had clothes on that today would be less than $30, hat, boots, and clothes included. We have to be careful about what we understand about how someone dresses. Well, the putridness of prejudice becomes more fully revealed in our third point. Our third point is a declaration of condemnation. A declaration of condemnation. Look at verse four with me. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Those who have done the actions of verses 2 and 3 have made distinctions. Literally, discriminations. As that word in verse 4 is also well translated. They have become judges. Now, Judging in itself is not a problem. I've known many Christians who have come and said, Pastor, we should not be judging. The Bible says, judge not lest you be judged. And the Bible does say that. But of course, that's taking Matthew 7 out of context. Because what the Bible does say is first to make sure that you take the log out of your eye before you go to pick the speck out of your brother's eye. And also that as you judge, understand that the stick or the measure or the meat with which you judge will be weighed back to you. The standard that you judge others will also be the standard by which you are judged. Therein, judging is not wrong. It is just something that is to be entered in with the greatest of consideration. So as we recognize this idea of Of what's involved with judging. It's not the judging itself that is the problem. The problem is judging with evil motives. Evil motives or evil intent. It is judging with a predisposition to tear someone else down. I'm judging because I want to take you and I want to hammer what you're thinking. I want to take your perspective and I want to tear it apart. This is judging with evil motives. And it is unbiblical and ungodly. Of course, the statement at the beginning of verse 4 shows that they are guilty of this. Where it says, have you not made distinctions? That question in the negative is assuming that there is a positive condition already going on. When he says, have you not made distinctions? It's like saying, you have made distinctions. And in doing so, you have been guilty and you are wrong in so bringing such accusations. In verse 5, James further declared the event of their condemnation where he says, Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? He begins with the command to listen. This would have been very common to them. As soon as they heard this, their ears would have perked up. This is a Jewish Christian audience, and they would have been immediately drawn back to one of the primary teachings in Judaism, which is the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter six. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. So they would, as, as he said, listen, my beloved brethren, their ears would have immediately picked up to that very, very familiar teaching. And he again connects them as beloved brethren. So showing again that this is, this is difficult stuff. These are hard teachings. And he's right there with them associating the same challenges that they are feeling, the same persecution, the same guilt and shame for having done such things. Listen, my beloved brethren, this also helps confirm for us that this is the Lord's brother, James, the head of the Jerusalem church, who's writing this book because the exact same phrase is used back in Acts 15. So, As he brings this away, he again connects with them. And then the condemnation of verse four, strong as it was, and he then allies himself in all of that. And he again uses the negative to reveal the positive condition. Did not God choose? The answer is, God did choose. James reminds them that God chose the poor so as to be rich in faith. James allies himself with the other New Testament writers in confirming God's plan of election. God chose. Now, we don't need a full dissertation about this. We understand what election is. We understand God's choosing. But what sometimes we don't understand is that James carries the very same connotation as did the rest of the other New Testament authors. James recognizes in this, and others would say, well, James keeps talking about works, and James is teaching a works righteousness. No, he is not. Over and over, he teaches about God's election and God's choice. The problem that becomes when there is such strong teaching about obedience, and that obedience is an area in which the audience is lacking, then they tend to make presuppositions that maybe there's a works righteousness being taught. But clearly that's not the case. Notice that he changed the meaning of the poor and the rich here in verse 5. It's not monetary, but rather it is spiritual. It's not that one has to be poor monetarily to be of the elect. That couldn't be the case because it would be the exact opposite of what he was condemning before. It would be a prejudice of stating, well, if you're not poor, you will not be part of the elect. No, rather, he is speaking about the spiritually poor and the context of our verse shows us that. Listen, my beloved brethren, did, God, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? He's not talking anymore in the sense about material poor or poverty and riches. Rather, he has transitioned to speak about a spiritual dimension. This is the idea of Matthew 5.3, which we know James often goes to the Lord's teaching and often goes to the Sermon on the Mount. And so, as he does here, brings forth the idea of Matthew 5.3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So this is what he's speaking about when he says this. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So he's talking now about how these who are poor in spirit will receive this tremendous inheritance. That same connotation of that inheritance is further conveyed at the end of the verse. Where it says they are not only rich in faith but they are heirs of the kingdom. He's pointing forward. He's pointing forward to the the glorious return of Christ, which will come to fruition at his return. The time where all will be fulfilled and where all of the blessings and all of the delights and the efforts made will be fully rewarded. So these poor in spirit are rich in faith. And this is the issue of judgment. They're to be judged based on their spirituality, not upon their material possession. They're heirs of the kingdom. Again, confirming that spiritual component of poor and rich. And that focusing on an understanding as he moves to the concluding thing and he says that uh, the concluding clause and says, and this inheritance is to those who love him. To those who love him, this is reminiscent of what we spoke about last week from 1 John chapter 2 and verses 3 to 5. That is those who love God who keep his commandments. And it is those who love God to whom have been given and who have been made heirs of the kingdom. Then verse 6a concludes our declaration of condemnation. And it says there, but you have dishonored the poor man. You have dishonored the poor man. The beginning but you shows that there's a contrast from the previous blessings of the spiritually poor. And it says, but you have dishonored the poor man. And this is the direct condemnation. Those who God honors in verse five have now been chosen as personal favorites in a negative way. They have been brought prejudice upon And so because of that, they have dishonored this man in their discrimination. And now we are returning to the physical component because he uses the word man. This is exactly the same way that James uses poor and rich and moves from spiritual to physical back in verses 9 to 10 of chapter 1, which we previously discussed. So as we understand all that he is bringing forward here, he is saying that by specifying the poor man in verse 6, that what you are doing is you are showing prejudice. You are discriminating and you are dishonoring this one. This is a huge problem because this poor man is a believer in Christ. A fellow heir. One who will be with the redeemed in heaven one equal and deserving of all the honor of God's children. And this one, by his prejudice, has told him to sit by his filthy feet. A declaration of condemnation And our third point leads to our fourth point, a determination of contempt. A determination of contempt. The second half of verse 6 begins our fourth point where it says, Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? James brings three accusations against the rich in verses 6b to 7. But we must be careful here not to misread these. James isn't saying reject all rich people because of their wealth. That would be absolutely contrary to his whole argument. If he were saying this, it would be the same offense made against the poor. Oh, you're rich, so we're going to shun you. No, that's not it at all. Rather, he gives us three different standards by which we are determined the rich who are to be held in spiritual contempt. And each question is written as a negative, assuming a positive result, just like we saw back in verses 4 and 5. Therefore, confirming the condition exists. And the first addresses the oppression some rich exhibit, thus taking advantage of the poor. Throughout Scripture, this is something that God is just absolutely incensed about. In Amos chapter 4, and verse 1, the prophet casts tremendous condemnation upon the nation of Israel for favoring the rich over the poor and for bringing oppression upon them. Ezekiel 22 and verse seven, the same thing occurs. And so, so also the Lord, in three of our four gospels, we are brought the teaching of Christ that confirms the horrible offense of this oppression. That is where Jesus says to the Pharisees and hypocrites, who devour widows' houses and pronounces woe upon them. One of those texts in Mark 12 and 40. This is the same thing as the parable of the widow's might. This is not a picture of sacrificial giving as this woman, this widow, with only a might to her name, all that she had to exist on, gave that as an offering. That is not the kind of giving that God asks. He does not want every penny, every financial component that one might have. This was the Pharisees bilking the women out of their money and making them feel guilty because they could not contribute at the same level. The context of that whole passage confirms all of this. Well, the second question addresses their dragging the poor into court. The poor would have no money for defense. They could not hire an attorney to defend them And this was the typical manner by which the rich would bilk the poor. And they would drag them into court and they would either accuse them of court or they would then give them a loan at a ridiculous usury interest so that then they would eventually lose the property. And therein they would devour widows' houses, just as we discussed earlier. But more than that, Scripture rebukes the believer for going to court at all, in 1 Corinthians 6. He tells us that the believers will stand in judgment over all of the nations, even over the angels in 1 Corinthians 6. And therein, why are any going to court? Our third example is in verse 7, where it says, do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? They blaspheme the name of God, the fair name. Various translations have honorable name, The noble name, the worthy name, and each of these clearly indicating that this is the name of God. This blasphemy is a verbal proclamation against God. And a violation of the third commandment where it says, "...do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain." The sin of blasphemy having a very broad application, although in concept it is a verbal proclamation. The point being that these who acted in such a way receive a determination of contempt. But these are not the only ones that are in danger of this determination of contempt. Remember back in verse 1, the literal understanding of that first verse? My brethren, do not hold the faith of our glorious Lord Jesus with an attitude of personal favoritism. The attitude of personal favoritism showing this prejudice. James notes here the faith as belonging to Christ. And he does so because those who are showing personal favoritism, their faith is in question. For how could you exalt yourself as one who could look down upon others when all that you have was given to you? Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verses 6 to 8 says the same thing. It says, how do you boast as if you have something that you have not received? Everything that we have is from God as we give of our offerings each morning, we do not give of of all that we have attained on our own. It is all that which God has given to us. And thus, as they bring this forward and make these accusations, it's those who practice in an attitude of, or a deed of prejudice, that are doing so contrary to the faith that comes from Christ. It is of Christ Christ. And whatever prejudices, plural, they may be, yes, looking down upon the poor or making distinctions of social status, but so also, as we've described, those of gender or ethnicity. All men are created equal in the image of God. And all women are created equal in the image of God. And all men and women are created equal in that same image. Any discrimination based on gender is an act against the faith which is from Christ. Any discrimination based on money is an act against the faith from Christ. Any discrimination based on ethnicity is an act against the faith which is from Christ. Those who do such things are acting contrary to how a Christian is to act. Beloved, we come back to a recent message we had on Wednesday nights from Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3, where it says, consider others more highly than yourself. If we put this into practice, never are we going to be in danger of this situation. Put all others above yourself. Consider everyone higher than who you are. How glorious is our Lord Jesus Christ. Our glorious Lord Jesus Christ who has given us faith. How beautiful to honor him. What a joy to know of the gift that he has given us. What a privilege we have to know that he continues to guide and shape and hone us and direct us. This privilege and this joy and this delight in Christ must be ours every minute, and we must examine ourselves. Just as Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians thirteen five. examine yourselves to see if you be of the faith unless you fail the test for Jesus Christ is in you. And as Jesus Christ is innocent, as I pray, none would fail that test that all would understand the glories and excellencies of the gospel, the beautiful creation of God, the horrors of sin that have haunted all mankind, and the redemption that comes only through Christ, that we would seek to lift these up every day, and that we would make certain that for our parts, never would we tear them down with an attitude of personal favoritism, with an attitude of prejudice, And in this, and that by purging the putridness of prejudice from our lives, that we would better bring the glory and honor that only Christ is deserving to him in all things and in all ways. And that we would be strengthened in our most holy faith as an understanding of that which God has called us to.